It is a privilege for us to be with you. Um, let's take a moment and introduce ourselves a little bit more. Yeah, take that one. My name is Scott Taransky, and my wife's name is Carrie. And Carrie and I have five children. Our oldest son, Josh, is a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. He uh, does Pastor's Perspective. Maybe you hear him on the radio. Uh, he and his wife, Melinda, have three kids. Uh, and so we love to come to California, Southern California, and visit them regularly. We're from New Jersey, so we're quite a ways away. Our second born is Melissa. She and Peter live in New York City, and they travel to Africa regularly because they work with a foundation that provides economic aid to African countries. Ben is our next born. He and, uh, he's in the U.S. Marines, stationed in North Carolina, and he and his wife, Galen, have a little girl. Then we have adopted two girls into our family. That's Megan and Elizabeth. They're our youngest. They're 28 years old now. Uh, they are full-time pet groomers, and they live nearby us in New Jersey. And my name is Joanne Miller. My husband's name is Ed. Ed also works for the National Center for Biblical Parenting. He's our director of development. So he interacts with churches. He does a lot of networking. He does all our social media stuff. Uh, and so Ed is, uh, will be involved with you folks as we go on and move forward and you continue on parenting issues. Uh, Ed can also be a great contact for you folks. And then Ed and I have two grown sons. Our older son, Dave, is married to Amanda and they're expecting their first child in January. So I'll be a grandma then. And so we're excited about that. But Dave also works for the National Center for Biblical Parenting. He's our seminar coordinator. So he's the one who's been interacting with Pastor Carlin as you've been preparing to have us come. Uh, Dave does that in the office every day. He's working with churches around the country. Our younger son is Tim. Tim's a civil engineer, lives nearby us in New Jersey. Now, the Millers and the Transkys have been working together in ministry for over 25 years. So all these kids who are adults now were little at one time. And we had to develop parenting strategies to work with each one of our children, recognizing that every child is unique and different. And every family is unique and different. And now we have the privilege of working with families around the country. Uh, and so we're happy to be here with you tonight. But we know that you've got some unique struggles in each one of your families because your children are unique. They're not like my children or like Scott's children. They're different. But we can uh, <coughs> share with you some ideas tonight that are not just theory or vague generalities, but we want to share some specific strategies with you tonight in just a short period of time together. Things, a way of looking at your family, looking at your children that will help you uh, feel better equipped for the challenges that come day by day. We love to come to Calvary Chapels. I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor myself in Robbinsville, New Jersey, teaching verse by verse through the Bible, Romans chapter 8 on Sunday. Looking forward to being with my folks on Sunday morning. But one of the things that we do in the National Center for Biblical Parenting is we help do parenting seminars. We've trained 150 presenters who do our parenting seminars around the country now. Joanne and I have written 15 books on parenting. We brought a number of those. They're on the back table that we can talk about a little bit later on. And um, we love helping parents work with their children using a heart-based approach, but we also like to help churches develop discipleship programs for parents. We all need help, don't we? Parents and grandparents need help as we're trying to do that difficult work of working with children. So we love to come to churches and equip them and, and look for ways to help you. Now, tonight we're going to zero in on one particular idea, um, actually two. We're going to take two illustrations. We're talking about attitudes and anger, but we're really going to teach you more about a heart-based approach to parenting. What does it mean to reach a child's heart? I, everybody who came in here says, I want to reach my child's heart. No doubt, we all want to do that. But how do we do that? in practical ways. So by taking common things like an attitude or anger in kids, we're going to show you how to reach a child on a heart level instead of just using behavior modification to help our kids change. 
So the strategies that we've developed and that we share with families, we call heart-based approaches to parenting. And that all sounds really good, but you're asking, well, what is a heart-based approach anyway? That's what we want to talk about. We'll use attitude and anger as illustrations of a heart-based approach. But we want you to understand the difference between a heart-based approach and behavior modification. See, and there's a really strong difference. I, I think we were all concerned about our children's hearts. We all want to use a heart-based approach. We know that the heart is important. It's important to us as parents because it's important to God. But what does that mean day to day? Because it's often their behavior that's getting them into trouble, right? We see their behavior. We know we want to change their behavior. We want them to act differently. Often it's their behavior that uh, is embarrassing us. It's getting them into trouble. And so we try and train, change their behavior. But then we have to come back and say, well, what does the heart have to do with this anyway? Well, we would suggest that behaviors are just symptoms of deeper issues. Right. And we want to talk about those deeper issues, but we want to be practical when we do it. It can't just be theory. You see, here's the problem. I would suggest that many of us, if not all of us, were raised with behavior modification. Those are the strategies that come to mind, first of all, because they're so common in our culture, in our society. Most parenting books that you pick up will talk about reward and punishment. How do you motivate children to do the right thing by giving them the right rewards, and you offer punishment to keep them from doing the wrong thing, and we just expect our kids to be able to move forward like that. That's how we were raised, right? We knew what was coming if we did the wrong thing. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked. Here's the problem. The more and more we're using just reward and punishment, the more and more we're finding children heading in the wrong direction because they ask the wrong questions in life. Here's what I mean by that. See, if you're using behavior modification, you're probably saying things like, if you clean your room, you can have a friend over. Right? I mean, if you finish your homework, you can play on the computer. Those things are logical things to say. They make a lot of sense, and so we say them all the time. The problem is kids start asking questions like, why should I do that? What's in it for me? What's the bare minimum I need to do in order to get that reward or avoid that punishment? And I think we're seeing that uh, so often in children nowadays, is that children are just looking at, what, what am I going to get out of this? And what we want is we want them doing the right thing for the right reasons. We want them to ask questions like, what's the right thing to do? To choose courses of action based on internal convictions to be godly and to do what's right and to think about others, not just on what I'm going to get out of it. And so if that's true, I think we need to add some new strategies to our parenting resources. Now, we're not saying behavior modification is wrong. You can't use reward and punishment. We all like to be motivated by rewards. That's often why we go to work, to get that paycheck, right? Uh, we clean the house, and then we have ourselves a bowl of ice cream. You know, we like to reward ourselves when we do the right thing. But we would suggest a steady diet of only reward and punishment often leads children just toward more selfishness. They're feeding their own desires. And really what we want uh, is to add some behavior, add to the behavior modification some heart-based strategies, and I think we'll see some different results then as we're working with our children. If children change on a heart level first, then their behavior will change. 
If we change on a heart level, we understand what's going on in the heart. We help them make right choices inside first. Then we're going to see that come out in their behavior. And then that'll be kind of the, the uh, measurement. And we do look at behavior to measure our kids. But that's not really where the, the action is going to take place in our parenting. So we're going to share some heart-based strategies with you. We'll talk about that as we go through our evening. What's a heart-based strategy? What does that look like? And we're going to send you off here with some tools. So let's, talk with, let's start by talking about attitudes and give you some understanding about them. Let's try to define an attitude and what it is. If we were to talk about an attitude and what an attitude is, we're going to find that an attitude is a prepackaged response to a trigger. Let's start there. A prepackaged response to a trigger. All you have to do is say the word bath to a three-year-old, and he takes off running the other way. Or math to a 10-year-old, and he gives you the attitude, right? It's prepackaged. It's ready to go, all just waiting for the trigger. Now, there's been times in my uh, parenting where I realize I'm the trigger. I knock on my son's, teenage son's door. He opens the door. What do you want? I didn't even say anything yet. And I'm already getting an attitude. Maybe I say to myself in those moments, I've overemphasized the business side of parenting, you know, giving instructions, correcting, setting limits. And I haven't emphasized the relational side enough. I want my son, when I knock on his door, to not know whether I'm doing business or maybe I'm just trying to find out how he's doing. Sometimes an attitude can be, the trigger can be a person. His brother walks in the room and he puts on this mean attitude. It's a problem. An attitude is a mindset or a prepackaged response to a trigger. Now, maybe you haven't thought about attitude in that way as a prepackaged response, but don't you sometimes anticipate a bad attitude? You know, if you bring up this particular subject, you're going to have trouble in the attitude department. I think we anticipate bad attitudes sometimes because of the patterns we have in family life. And so we would suggest that identifying some of those triggers are going to give us indicators of what's going on in the heart. But let me just do an illustration with you to just help you see this idea of triggers, uh, practically speaking. Uh, I'm going to name some things that we're familiar with. I want you to give me a thumbs up if you have a good attitude toward them, and a thumbs down if you have a bad attitude. Okay? Starbucks. <laughs> How about roller coasters? Motorcycle gangs? Yeah. How about teenagers? No, I'm like kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> Let's do one more. The people of Vimbonia. You have no attitude toward them because you never heard of them. I made that up. But let's imagine that the people of Vimbonia hate children. Now, do you have an attitude toward them? I've never met them, and I don't like them already. <laughs> well, how is it that we come to an attitude so quickly? We would suggest that it's information and experience lead us to develop these prepackaged responses. Now, the problem is sometimes our children have uh, limited experience or limited or even erroneous information they're basing their attitudes on. But once we have information and experience, we de decide what we think about something, and then we don't reevaluate it every time we see it. We just have that response. It's prepackaged, it comes out. And that could be toward math or bath, or it could be toward McDonald's or Starbucks or anything. We know what we think. We have an attitude all ready to go. Uh, but often those prepackaged responses lead us into trouble. So we want to understand attitude in that way. Okay, we're seeing a bad attitude. 
What is the trigger that's causing that? That's going to be part of the uh, information we're gathering as we're working with our kids. Let's get some more information about an attitude before we give you some solutions. I want to talk about three components that make up an attitude, and this is going to help you understand the heart a little bit more. One of the components of a bad attitude is behavior. That's what you see, the rolling eyes, the grunt, the sarcastic remark. I'm not talking about your husband or wife. I'm talking about <laughs> your kids, okay? But all of us experience these challenges as we're moving forward. Behavior is what you see that's on the outward. But there's also some things on the inside. So we want, our, we want to realize that the heart-related things are things like emotions or thinking errors that feed bad attitudes. Emotions are one of the things that exist inside of the heart. Jesus said to his disciples... Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Emotions exist inside of the heart. Thinking errors that children have, thinking exists in the heart as well, or, or the beliefs that we have when uh, Paul said in Romans 10, 9, and 10, say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. The point I'm trying to make is that beliefs also exist in the heart. So if we're only dealing with behavior, we are missing something when we're trying to deal with attitudes. If you're going to successfully deal with attitudes in a child, or even in us as parents, we must address some of the deeper things that go on underneath the picture. So we want to understand all three of these components. If we're going to address bad attitudes uh, in our families or in a child's life, we want to see that the behavior is the flag that says we have a problem. When you see those behaviors, the rolling eyes, the slouch posture, the huffing voice, that's the indicator that we need to work on this. We need to understand this. We can't just say, though, stop having a bad attitude and look for behavior change. We've got to go deeper. But the, the behavior is important. It's the flag. The emotion, well, there's emotion feeding that bad attitude. Now, when we think of emotion and attitude, we often will think about anger. And it might be anger feeding the bad attitude. Sure. But we would suggest that our children experience a host of emotions they don't understand. They don't know what to do with. They don't know how to respond to it. So they just put on a bad attitude on the outside, and they all look the same on the outside. But on the inside, it might be anger, or it could be fear. It could be anxiety. It could be embarrassment. It could be pride. We don't know what it is because it all looks the same on the outside. But if we're going to move towards some solutions, we've got to deal with the emotional component of the attitude. Furthermore, the attitude, the emotion of the attitude uh, may indicate when we're going to deal with this problem because often in the heat of emotion is not the best time to deal with attitude problems. We may have to just log it away and say we're going to have to deal with this later. Let's talk about it later. Let's understand it a little bit more completely because right now the emotion is so intense we can't get anywhere. So emotion is important. We want to take that into consideration when we're dealing with attitude, thinking about that emotion. But also the thinking errors, the beliefs. Sometimes we say thinking errors, sometimes we call it beliefs. But it's basically, we're talking about what the child believes about life that's leading to the bad attitude. You see, often it's our, our thinking errors that get us into trouble. If a child believes that homework is a waste of time, well, it's no wonder they're going to have a bad attitude when they have to do their homework, right? Nobody likes to waste their time. If a child believes that chores are mom's work, well, they're going to have a bad attitude when they're told to do chores. Why are you telling me to do your work? You know, i got things to do, like play on the computer. 
so often it's the thinking errors that are going to create the problems. See, but I think sometimes it's hard to know what the thinking errors are, right? We see the bad attitude. It's easy to see the behavior. But how do you know what that thinking error is? How do you know where the beliefs are, the emotions that you want to deal with? And, and that's where the heart-based approach becomes really important because we're looking for patterns of bad attitudes, tendencies are indicators of heart issues. You see, if a child has a bad attitude when you give an instruction, if it only happens once, well, you know, they could just be having a bad day. You could write that off. If they just have a bad attitude twice, well, that's a coincidence. You may take notice, but you don't really have to deal with it. But if it happens a third time, if it happens repeatedly, if it becomes a pattern, every time you give an instruction, you've got this bad attitude, now it's something to take notice of, to do something about. We would suggest that's a heart issue that it's causing it to happen as a pattern. So that's one of the things we we're going to do in a heart-based approach. We're going to look for patterns of bad attitudes, looking for those tendencies. So we would suggest one of the things you may want to do is do some journaling about the bad attitudes you see in your home. You don't feel like you have to react to everyone and squelch it on the spot. That's more of a behavior modification approach. A heart-based approach does some research first. Let's see what those tendencies of the heart are really telling us. So take your journal and just write down every time you see a bad attitude in your home. Who was involved? What was the trigger? Just write a few thoughts down for a day or two. And then when you go back and look at your journal, you may see some patterns of bad attitudes that are going to give you indicators of the heart issues. If you look at your list, you may say, oh, my son has a bad attitude towards schoolwork. He has a bad attitude toward chores. He has a bad ad attitude even when helping a friend. Maybe he believes that work should be avoided at all cost. I think a common thinking error among children. <laughs> but what we're doing is we're looking for patterns. So take some time, do some research, study what the triggers are, what are the patterns you're seeing in the bad attitudes. And once you've got that information, then you can start developing a strategy to bring about change. And that's going to be a, a heart-level strategy then, not just getting rid of that behavior. Jesus illustrated this idea of, of tendencies by describing the heart as the trunk of a tree and the behavior as the fruit of the tree. And he says that a good tree doesn't produce evil fruit, and an evil tree doesn't produce good fruit. It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. So we're looking not just at what comes out on the behavior side. We're going deeper to see what's inside the heart. Now, we're going to work on children on a heart level, and we're going to try to adjust some of the attitudes that we see in them. We're going to have to take some solutions that are proactive, not just solutions that are reactive. We want to take some proactive solutions to help our children make some changes. So let us give you some proactive solutions to help you. I would suggest the first proactive solution is to evaluate the influences that are around your child. Why do we say that? Because at first, remember, we talked about the triggers and how information and experience often contribute to attitudes. And if our children are having a lot of negative experiences and a negative influences, it can contribute to negative influences, contribute to bad attitudes in their lives. So we want to be sensitive to the influences around them. And as parents, of course, we recognize the importance of influences. So we make choices for our children. We try to avoid bad influences and be in the presence of good influences, right? We make choices. Uh, maybe you've chosen a schooling option for your children based on influences. Maybe you had the privilege of choosing a neighborhood based on influences. Uh, when our children are young, we often choose who they spend their time with. 
uh, what music they listen to, what they watch on TV, if they watch TV at all. You know, we're trying to protect our children from bad influences by a lot of the choices we make. The problem is that the older our children get, the more they're making their own choices, right? We have less and less control over who they spend their time with, how they spend their money, what they're listening to, what they're watching. They're out of our control more and more often. So we can't just protect our children. I think we also need to equip our children. So as they're growing up, they're learning to make wise choices and to protect their own hearts. Uh, so what might that look like? Well, let me make a suggestion of something we could do as parents, we, uh, an approach we might take. Maybe after you've done your journaling, you recognize that your son has a bad attitude toward his sister after playing with a particular friend. Usually brother and sister get along pretty well, but after he's at this friend's house, he comes home, he kind of excludes her, he's got this condescending attitude, he treats her unkindly. And you're seeing this as a pattern now, so you want to address that. So when your son comes and asks permission to go play at that friend's house, well, you've got a choice to make. You may say, you know, I'm not sure that's a good idea, we're going to say no today. Or maybe you'll have that friend come to your house so you can monitor more closely, that's a choice we might make. Or you may choose just to challenge your child to think about what's going on and say something like this. You know, son, I'm concerned that after you play with that friend, you come home, you're unkind to your sister. I'm not sure what's going on there. I don't know what goes on over at your friend's house or how he treats his sister, but I want you to think about that today. I'm going to say yes and allow you to go play over there, but I'm going to be watching when you come home and see how you manage yourself as you interact with your sister when you get back home. You see, when we do that, we're raising the awareness level. We're helping children to see, oh, maybe I am being influenced. What is going on over there? See, I think often children are influenced and they don't realize it. They don't realize they start mimicking their friends or whatever's going on around them. And so we want to raise the awareness level. We want them to see it. And we challenge them then to guard their hearts and make wise choices. Because what we want to do is prepare them for those older years when they're out of our home more. So just keep that in mind that one of the things we do in this area of influences is we teach children to guard their own hearts, to be aware of how they're being influenced, and call them to make wise choices. I counsel with families in, in our office um, every week. And I love telling children Bible stories that apply to life situations. I like telling kids a st this a particular story I'm going to share with you now that ties into this whole idea of attitudes and influences that affect our kids. I say to kids, Jesus was working with his disciples, and he had an idea he wanted to pass on to his disciples that faith is all about the heart. That's why he used the word heart so many times as he was teaching them. It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, and so on. But at one point, he says to his disciples, you see those guys over there, those Pharisees? You must obey them, but don't do what they do. In fact, he says, don't let them influence you like yeast. He talks about leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? What is he talking about? You see, the Pharisees had a different idea about spirituality and faith that it was external. It was behavior related. So Jesus describes them in Matthew 23. He says, they clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. I tell you, clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be clean. Jesus described the, the influence as leaven. Leaven um, changes the constitution of the dough. So it's no longer a cracker. 
It is now bread. It's changed into something else. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful about the influences around you, they can affect you and change the constitution of your heart. They can make you into something different than what God wants you to be and what he's designed for you. Another verse that you might use to help children understand this is 1 Corinthians 15, 33, which says, bad company corrupts good character. It's very clear there that the influences that are around us sometimes can get us into trouble. We must be careful of those influences. And I think explaining that to children can often help them guard their own hearts, in essence, to be on guard and watch how other people are influencing them and leading them maybe to have the kind of attitudes that are not healthy, not best, and certainly not godly at times. And of course, as we're thinking about influences, we can't just think about people influences, but we also need to be evaluating the influences of the media, the influences uh, that are affecting our children. Uh, Sometimes it's the TV shows, sometimes it's the TV commercials. Do our children realize that the purpose of a commercial is to influence them, to change what they believe? Well, I think our children need to realize that. And so we may have some conversations about the things we're seeing. What do you think was the real message of that commercial? What are they saying what's necessary in life to be happy? What do you think about that? And having conversations about the music they listen to, the movies they watch. Uh, There's just so many influences in our world. The video games they play influence our kids. Sometimes parents will report children more aggressive in relationship after playing a particular video game. Well, I would suggest that a lot of those video games uh, have the message that in order to win, you have to overpower. Well, that may be fun in a game, uh, but it gets the adrenaline going, and, and if you try to overpower in relationship, that's not the best way to solve problems. And so these are just discussions. Our kids need to realize how they're being influenced. Let's talk about it, evaluate those influences. Sometimes we have to say, you're not ready for that kind of video game. Other times children can make the adaptation, and that's okay. They they understand it. They're not so influenced by it. But I think it's helpful for us as parents to evaluate the influences. Where are those bad attitudes being uh, fed? And how can we help children be wise in those situations? Let's go to a second proactive solution, and let's talk about... teaching kids about emotions. See, I think some of our kids are emotionally illiterate. They don't know how to communicate the fact that they're disappointed or frustrated. And so they use an attitude to communicate it. That becomes the way of saying, I have, I'm not happy with what you're doing to me right now. And so they start pushing things around and, and they start uh, giving you the glary, hairy eyeball look. And, you know, they start doing things to communicate something that's going on inside of them because they don't know how to effectively communicate emotions. So I would suggest we need to teach them, talk about emotions, and help our kids understand that in some practical ways. Of course, this is not as easy as it sounds because you can't just say to a child, tell me, what are you feeling? Uh, Maybe you've tried that and the child just becomes more withdrawn, right? If they're having a bad attitude because of something that's going on emotionally, likely they can't communicate about those emotions. They don't have the words to use. And so when we start coming at them and say, come on, talk to me, talk to me, they really don't know how to handle that. Uh, So we would suggest that we have to do more teaching and training in the area of talking about emotions. And that's why it's a proactive solution. Children don't know how to talk about their emotions. That's why we have this problem. We want to give them uh, the ability to develop a more, uh, a, a better emotional vocabulary. Sometimes that's done by uh, being vulnerable, being transparent ourselves as parents, 
to talk about emotions ourselves. I think sometimes as parents, we try and protect our children from how we're feeling emotionally because we don't want to dump on them. But the reality is we have to teach them. So sometimes that means being transparent, you know, saying things like, hey, you know, I'm disappointed that I got to the store and it was closed, or I'm feeling anxious about that meeting I have later. Uh, just using emotion words to describe ourselves can be helpful for our children so they hear that and they hear it in context. And then we can make observations about the, observ the uh, emotions we see our children experience. It makes sense you'd be disappointed. I'd be disappointed too if that happened to me. But then we also want to help them separate the emotion from the action. Because sometimes we have to discipline for the action, but we want them to realize we're not disciplining for the emotion. Uh, yeah, it makes sense you're disappointed, but throwing your shoes across the room is the wrong response. That's hurtful, you can't do that. You need to say things like, I'm disappointed. And so we may give them the words to say, actually. Just, I'm disappointed. Say, same way as when we're teaching a two-year-old to talk and they're grunting and pointing. And we say, no, say cup, and I'll give you the cup. I think with our children, with emotion words, we want to use some of those words, too. Say, hey, you could say, I'm disappointed. That makes sense. But how you're acting is not appropriate. So we want to help our children with that emotional vocabulary. If you have preschoolers, you might start with three basic emotions that you're talking about. Sad, mad, and glad. And you might do some observation. You're out at the park or the grocery store, and you just talk about, uh, do you think that person over there is sad, mad, or glad? Often we can see emotions in other people, describe them, before we start looking at ourselves. It's an opportunity then to raise the awareness level of the, some emotions that our children are experiencing. All of that's very important, I think, as we're teaching our children how to communicate effectively. Instead of communicating with an attitude as a vehicle for saying, I'm unhappy with what's going on, so I'm going to treat you with disrespect or miserably, now we're talking about emotions and we're teaching children how to address them more effectively. So certainly we do this with young children, but I think there's also another wave of emotional development happens with pre-adolescence, uh, those early teen years. Children can be very emotional and they don't understand what's going on. So as parents, we wanna be compassionate, help them sort it through. I know you're confused by the way you're acting and feeling, you know, and you don't have words for that, but let's, what we wanna do is empathize and equip our young people to deal with their emotions so that they can respond more appropriately than just using a bad attitude. Let's go to another proactive solution. Let's talk about dealing with the thinking errors that our children have, because I th think sometimes we have to correct those thinking errors because they're just plain wrong. How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna, here's what happens. Let me draw this out for you. Inside the heart, I've told you already that there are, um, there are a lot of things according to God's word. We did a study on the heart and we put it in the book, Parenting is Heart Work. And uh, we learned there, as we studied 750 times the word heart is used in the Bible, we started trying to understand what does that look like? And we learned that there are desires in the heart. Remember Psalm 37, four says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you. Okay, so you get, good, you guys are Calvary Chapel people, that's the thing, <laughs> desires of the heart, okay, I like that. Uh, we need to know that emotions are in the heart. Um, the king says to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter one, what is this sadness I see inside your heart? So we know that emotions exist. There's a whole bunch of stuff that, that are in the heart. I've already told you in Romans 10, it says beliefs exist inside of the heart. Now what we want to help our children do is change some of those beliefs because those beliefs get our kids in trouble. How are we going to do that? Well, if we're going to deal with attitudes, and let, let's look up the word attitude in the Bible. 
Where is the word used? I'm going to show you a verse in the Bible that uses the word attitude and helps us understand how to address attitudes effectively. In Hebrews chapter 4, let's go down to verse 12 here. Here's verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I just want to pause here for a moment. And I want you to see where we get the idea that attitudes exist in the heart. Are you seeing that there? It comes right out of the Bible. The attitudes of the heart. And there's a tool used to address those attitudes described right here in this verse. It says, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What is the it there? The Word of God. See, I think the Word of God... Okay, so let's go back to the diagram I was drawing for you. Inside of here, we also have the Word of God inside of our, um, our child's heart. Uh, how do I know that? Psalm 119.11 says, I will hide your Word in my heart, so I won't sin against you. Now, that's very important. If we can get the Word inside a child's heart, that's going to be very helpful. How are we going to do that? I'm going to give you some ideas about helping kids. How, how do we transfer this understanding of who God is, who we are, and God's plan for us into the heart of a child so it can affect them? I would suggest one of the ways you can do that is with a children's Bible. Having children's Bibles is good because it helps kids emotionally connect with the Bible. In our church, we encourage our children to have children's Bibles, and they're often carrying them around. This is my Bible. I just love it when I see that. Those kids coming into church carrying their Bibles. It's great. What makes a good children's Bible? I'm going to show you. This is my favorite children's Bible for children four to eight years old. In this Bible, this was written and created by a man from Dallas Theological Seminary. It contains 200 Bible stories. There's a lot of people who don't know there's 200 Bible stories. If you go open the, um, this Bible, you'll see there are three things that make a good children's Bible. One, it has the Bible passage where you can look it up yourself. I would suggest that if you get a children's Bible, you read it through with your child over the course of a year, and you look at the passage in the Bible where it actually comes from, you'll know that there's 200 Bible stories. I think a lot of us as adults are not very literate, not Calvary Chapel people, but you know other people. Okay, then it's written in a child's language, see? That's another second thing we're looking for. And thirdly, it has a question. This I opened up to, thank you, Jesus heals the lepers, 10 lepers. It says... The question then asked at the bottom, why is it important to thank others for the good things they do? Now we're taking God's word, taking something out of the story and applying it to our own lives. So the, the children, these are for children four to eight years old. Those children are taking God's word and understanding it in some practical ways. Now we're helping kids grasp the scriptures and bring it into their hearts and apply it in, I think, a strategic way that will affect the attitudes that they have. We suggest that every time we tell a Bible story to a child or read them a Bible story, we end with the question, what's the lesson learned? And help them to apply that story to their life now. Because I think some children think the Bible is for grown-ups. And I'll, you know, read it as an adult, but they don't understand that God wants to speak to them now as children. That God is interested in their lives and he uses his word to teach them. So we want to ask that question, what's the lesson learned? and help children come to God's word with a sense of anticipation. Every time we open up God's word, he's got a message for us. And that applies to our children as well. My dad, I grew up in a Christian home, and my parents made devotions really exciting. So my dad did this sense of anticipation. He would hold the Bible in his hand and he'd say, are you ready? I don't know whether God's gonna say something big 
or he's going to say something small, but we're about to open the Bible. I'm telling you, even now I open the Bible on my iPad. I have the sense of anticipation that God's going to speak to me. When I was um, four years old, I remember that on that night we learned about Jesus being the light of the world because we had devotions in the dark in the closet with a flashlight. And my dad says, this is Jesus, and we're like mirrors shining him around. My mom opens the door and says, here's some treats for devotions. My dad says, okay, give us the treats. Shut the door. We need it dark in here. That's all I remember about that story. (laughs) But when I think about Jesus being the light of the world, I think about a flashlight in the dark in the closet. See, my parents used the teaching techniques of Jesus. You see, when Jesus wanted to pass the faith on to his children, disciples we'll call them, he didn't sit around the table and read the Bible to them. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a very adult way of learning. He took them out into the field, and he wanted to teach them a lesson about, you know, you really need to die to self in order to be productive. So he takes a wheat, kernel of wheat, and he says, see this kernel of wheat? You have to plant it in the ground, and it has to die so that it can produce. He's using an illustration, a story, a, an example, some creativity. When Jesus wanted to teach his disciples about um, doing dirty jobs, you know, we all have to do dirty jobs in the family, right? There's cleaning up after the dog in the backyard and washing the toilet and washing the dishes and emptying the trash. Those are dirty jobs. Jesus didn't have a seat. Everybody sit down. We got to talk about jobs here. Some are dirty and some are easy. We all have to choose. He didn't do that. He just gets up from the table, puts a towel around his waist, and he goes and does a dirty job washing the disciples' feet, something they never forgot. When Jesus wanted to teach his disciples about bickering with each other, he took an illustration from his childhood. You know, Jesus grew up in a carpenter shop, so he says to his disciples, you know, guys, Come over here. I want to give you an illustration about bickering with each other. You know how it is when you get a piece of sawdust in your eye? Well, if you see a piece of sawdust in your brother's eye, before you take it out, you better get the plank out of your own eye first. Just taking an illustration out of his own childhood. When he wanted to illustrate how simple faith is, don't make it complicated like we do. You know, we get so complicated in life, he takes a little child, and he stands the child in their midst in Mark chapter 12. And he says, you need to have faith just like a little child. You see, Jesus used creativity and life experience to pass the faith on to his children, disciples. We're trying to pass the faith on to our disciples who live in our home. How are we going to do that? I would say creativity, life experience. When my dad came home from work, the four kids in our family, our eyes would get big when he said we're going to do Bible time, family time, devotions. I don't know what he said, but our eyes would get big because we knew we were about to blow something up or do a race around the house. Or we're going to do a treasure hunt, all tied into something from God's word. Let me give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about running a race around the house. Well, not exactly. But what it does is it says, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus, not easily entangled by the sin around us. That's the Taransky version of that verse. Okay, But that's basically what it says. Now, here's what you can do with kids. Say, kids, we're going to read that verse about the race, and we're going to do a race around the house to illustrate it. But you're not going to race against each other because it doesn't say we have our eyes fixed on our brothers and sisters to see who's the best, right? It says we have our eyes fixed on Jesus because we're not running a race against our brothers and sisters. We're running a race against ourselves with the Lord. We're focused on him. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this sin that so easily entangles us. Okay, so you're going to run a race. Run to the bedroom, touch the bed, go into the kitchen, do the the maze through those chairs, go into the living room, I mean, into the dining room, go around the chairs twice, come back in here and do a somersault, and then you'll be done. I'll time you, go. And so the first one does it. 
Then we say, okay, everybody's got their time now. Now we're going to do the sin that's easily entangled. Let's get mom's big old shoes and dad's baggy coat and big pants. Put all those on. We're laughing and having a good time as the kid's dressing up with all this big old stuff. And then they're trying to do the race the same way. We're laughing, having a great time. Then we sit down afterwards and we say, was it easier to run the race with the baggy clothes on or not? No, not with the baggy clothes on. You're right. You know, the baggy clothes represent the sin that so easily entangles us that talk about in the Bible there. Let's talk about some of the sins that entangle us in our lives. I'll give you an illustration. As a dad, you know, the other day when you spilled your milk and I grounded you for three months, that was a little over the top. I know I'm really trying to work on my anger. Billy, what are you trying to work on? Not running away when you call me. That's right, Billy. You were trying to work on that. That's good. Mary, what are you working on? Lying. That's right. I'm glad you admit it now. That's good. You're working on that. You see, those are sins that entangle us. Let's try to run the race together as a family. Do you see what we're doing? We're taking God's word. We're bringing it into the heart of a child using the teaching techniques of Jesus. Now, sometimes people say to us, I'm not creative like your dad. We're like Jesus. So what am I supposed to do? Well, we have such a passion for this at the National Center for Biblical Parenting that of our eight lines of curriculum, one of the lines of curriculum is dedicated to passing the faith onto children using God's word. And so we have a whole line of books called Family Time Activity Books, not called devotion books because some adults have grew up in homes where devotions meant boring. Okay, these are not boring. Okay, these are exciting. So there are three of them for all, for all ages, two for preschoolers and one for teenagers. Let me give you an example of one, one in the all ages one that's in here. Because I just want you to get your kids excited about the Bible. Have you heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The three brave friends thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down to the image. And God miraculously got them out of there. And their hair was not singed, their clothes were not scorched, and there was no smell of smoke. If you haven't heard the story, go read it in Daniel chapter 4. It's really an exciting story. But it has a message to it. Well, as you're teaching that story to your kids, here's an activity you might do. You take three cardboard cutouts, three gingerbread men made out of corrugated cardboard. You soak them in a solution of alcohol mixed with water according to the recipe in the book. And while they're still wet, you hang them on a hanger and light them on fire. I'm telling you, if you're having trouble getting dads involved in devotions, this is how you do it. Hey, honey, would you start devotion? Just light it up there. Here's what happens. The alcohol burns up dramatically, but the water protects the cardboard so it's not singed. It's not scorched and there's no smell of smoke. And your son says, do it again, Dad. Now, I want to give you a, a hint about doing devotions like this with your kids. Always stop when the energy level is high. So your kids are saying, Dad, let's do the race thing again. That was so fun. Or they say, Dad, would you burn that up again? You say, son, yes. We're going to have devotions in a couple days. Remind me. Now your kids are going, Dad, when are we going to do devotions again? Dad, when are we going to do That's so fun when we do devotions. When is the next thing we're going to do? You want your kids begging for more. And this is how you do it. You use the teaching techniques of Jesus. Jesus was continually using parables and stories and illustrations and life experience to grow his disciples, and we can do the same thing in our own families. As grandparents and parents are working with their grandchildren and their children, we can pass the faith on to this next generation that God wants to raise up with hearts that are following him. And when we're, we have the scriptures inside the heart, it affects the attitudes, it affects the emotions, it affects those other things going inside that's where we need to get the scriptures, into the heart of a child, not just into their heads. 
All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share with you about some of the resources we have that we brought with us in case you're interested in, something, in more. You don't have to buy anything from us, but if you're interested in more, we have a bunch of things out there. And you have a piece of paper that looks like this that contains a list of all of the things that are um, at that table. If you don't, I think there's some back on the table back there if you didn't get this. But, and there's also specials that we have, conference specials. And, and let me just tell you about some of them in case you're interested. One is, if you say, where do we start with a heart-based approach? We suggest you start with this material. The Parenting is Heart Workbook. Remember I said 750 verses in the Bible? This is the study of the difference between a heart-based approach and behavior modification. It also has a, uh, in that line of curriculum, the training manual. This takes it and makes it very practical so that children are learning how to, in essence, change their, change their hearts. The first one here is on following instructions because in the process of teaching children how to follow instructions, you're teaching them how to uh, be responsive to authority, how to have cooperation, and how to be responsible. And so we show you how to do it. Now, you don't need chapter one if your kids do what you tell them to do, they have a good attitude, they do the job completely. Um, and, uh, but if you've got kids who run away when you call them, or, or you've got kids who have bad attitudes, or they do a job just the minimum to get by, or they, they disappear after you give them the job or something, then you really need to work on the, the training technique that's in here that will really help develop that in your child's life. So there's eight chapters in here, three of them on correction one that contains seven categories of consequences that you can use with your kids to prompt that change. Another one on helping kids accept no as an answer instead of arguing, whining, or badgering. All of that's in the training manuals. You might find that helpful. It's a curriculum. It has eight audio sessions, 45-minute uh, audio sessions. So you're really working through some techniques that'll help um, make it very practical for you. A second special that we have is the Christian Parenting Handbook. And this is the book that um, broadens your parenting strategies. So uh, there are 50 chapters in here. We wrote this for parents who don't like to read. Every chapter is like four or five pages long. And um, the first chapter is consistency is overrated. Because we're trying to make a contrast between behavior modification. You better use consistency if you're trying to get your dogs to jump through hoops. But we're talking about children. And they have a heart. So we're talking about how we work with kids. This is broadening your parenting, 50 heart-based strategies. And then if you're interested in internal motivation and the conscience from a biblical perspective, then this is our latest material. Motivate your child, and then the action plan helps us move any child from where they are to where they need to be. 12 chapters, 12 audio sessions, and so on. So we can talk to you more about these, um, these resources during the break. We're going to take a break for just seven or eight minutes. We're going to come back. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears, not talk about attitude. Now we're going to talk about anger. We're going to give you a biblical plan for helping people, primarily children we're working with, to address anger issues in their lives. Step-by-step -step plan, not only frustration anger, but we'll talk about hurt anger as well, okay? Seven or eight minutes. Come right back here. I'm going to start teaching whether you're back here or not in seven or eight minutes, all right? Let's do it. Okay, let's talk about um, anger. When I work with children in the subject of anger, one of the things that I'm trying to do when children come into my office is I want to communicate an important message to them. And that message is one that's on the handouts that you have. So I want you to look there with me. Um, do you see there that it says anger is good for identifying problems but not good for solving them? See, I think that's a theological statement about anger from, it's not in a quote from the Bible, but I think it's a summary. Anger is good for identifying problems, but not good for solving them. Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, do not sin. That gives me the impression that anger isn't evil. It's what you do with it that's a problem. James 
1, 19 and 20 says, uh, be slow to anger in verse 19. Mark 3, 5 says that Jesus got angry. That all tells me that it's not anger that's the problem. Anger is good for identifying problems, but not good for solving them. And so we have to, I, I start there with a child who's five or he's 15, just help give him a positive sense of that, that it's not the anger that's a problem. It's what you do with it that's so important. We, we need to know how to solve problems without anger. And, but we have to deal with this problem of anger inside your life. So what I do is I go with kids to a solution that has three different steps. I try to simplify it for kids, and I'm going to do that with you tonight because I think it'll help you put all this together, and I'm going to show you how we do it. So in step number one, when, we, when I'm working with a child, I want them to identify the cues, the early warning signs. When I say to a child, how can you tell when your anger's coming on? They have no idea what I'm talking about. I'll say, well, let me tell you how I can tell when anger's coming on. My eyebrows come down in the front. My shoulders come up. My voice gets a little bit more tense. And I know I'm starting to get angry. I better do something about it or we're going to have a problem. So I want him to be able to identify the cues first. That's going to be very important. I say to him, I counsel with children while their parents are watching. I want parents to learn from the experience. I said, let's ask dad about his anger. Dad, how can you tell when you're starting to get angry? Everybody does this differently. It's really fascinating to me. Recently, a dad said to me, my ears start to ring. I never heard that before. Another dad said, my hairs on my arms stand up on end, and they tingle. That doesn't happen to me, but that's what happens to him. I said, how can you, I said to mom, mom, how can you tell when you're starting to get angry? Sometimes the mom will say, I feel this pit in, in uh, this knot inside the pit of my stomach, or I, I start feeling my face starts getting hot, and, and then the uh, child starts laughing. Yeah, I know, you start turning red. You know, kids often can see the cues in someone else before they can see them in themselves. One, uh, one boy says, yeah, I can tell my dad's starting to get angry. His, his vein starts getting big on his neck, and, it, and uh, I can tell that he's starting to get angry. My, my, your mom? Yeah, I can tell when she's starting to get angry because her eyes get big and her neck sticks out. <laughs> what are the cues? Identifying the cues are very important. Why? Why is it important to identify the cues? Because James 1.19 says this, be quick to hear and slow to get angry. Slow to get angry. How can you be slow to get angry if you, unless you can see it coming on? So I want to equip children to be slow to get angry so they can see it coming on. They can slow down the process. Now, many parents will tell me, whoa, whoa, there's no slowing down. My son goes from zero to 60 instantly. I say, okay, well, let's slow down the process. Let's start identifying those early warning signs. So as a parent, you're seeing a child who's having a problem. You might say to the child, well, you're starting to move around pretty fast there. Do you need some help? You're drawing attention to the cues. It's rarely helpful to say to a child, you're starting to get angry. That just makes them more angry. But if you start drawing attention to the cues, then they start to see the anger coming on and they can make some subsequent choices. That's what we want. We want them to have some more self-control in order to manage this. So we start with identifying the cues. Now we have some strategies in our office uh, that we use to identify the cues as we're trying to practice with children. We'll take a movie. Like we like the movie Aladdin. It's an old movie, but we've been doing this for a long time. But we'll stick the movie Aladdin in and and give the child the remote control, get it to a certain part in the movie, and we'll say, okay, start the movie, and when you see someone starting to get angry, stop it with the remote control. We can stop the, the video in probably 10 times within this three-minute period. 
because people are angry. How can you tell? What did you see? Oh, that guy's stomping around, or his eyes get big, or look at those eyebrows. We like animated videos because animated videos exaggerate the facial expressions. or the, They're great. Almost every child's video has an anger scene in it. It's a great opportunity to draw attention to the cues. Identify the cues. You want to identify the cues because it empowers a child to move forward. You're going to see what we're going to do here is we're going to empower children to be able to manage themselves when it comes to anger. Instead of having to be parent-managed, now they'll be self-managed. Instead of having parent control, they'll have self-control. That's what we're trying to help them do. So the first step in an anger management plan is to identify the cues. The second step in an anger management plan is to step back or stop. Now, you'll see in your handout, it says there, stop. But sometimes I say to kids, I don't say the word stop, I say pull back. I was working with one 13-year-old girl, and so I use the word for her, pull back instead of push forward. If you pull back instead of push forward, you're... Um, you're kind of reversing the tendency. See, I, I explain anger to, about, to kids this way. I see that anger is like energy coming into your body. And when that, that energy comes into your body, it wants to go somewhere. If it comes out of your hands, you might hit something or throw something. If it comes out of your feet, you might stomp or kick. If it comes out of your eyes, you might glare at someone or start crying. If it comes out of your mouth, you might yell or say something unkind. But sometimes it comes out of all those places at the same time, and we call that a temper tantrum. Now, what I want to do is help you manage the energy as it's coming into your body. And that's why we need to pull back instead of pushing forward in order to address that. So I'm trying to help kids understand what this is going to look like in some very practical ways. But it is not easy to pull back when you're getting angry. Uh, we can teach kids this, and it sounds rather simplistic, and certainly, uh, it's the right thing to do is when you start, the emotion starts building is to be able to pull back and settle down. But that's not an easy thing to do, even for us as adults. I think it's also the right response for us as adults when the energy is coming in to be able to pull back and settle down first before acting. But uh, if you're a person who feels that energy coming in, you probably know it is not easy to settle down. You know, you, go, you walk into the playroom and you see all this uh, conflict going on and you see this mess and... The last thing you want to do is pull back and settle down because anger gives you energy and we want to use that energy to solve the problem. But we have to remember that anger is good for identifying problems. It's not good for solving them. And so we have to pull back and settle down. But that requires a fair amount of self-control to be able to do that. And so we're helping children develop self-control, but it's not a quick fix. Just because children need, know they need to pull back and settle down doesn't mean they can do it. It's a process we're developing. So we want to be patiently encouraging our children that this is the right response. We need to work on this and we need to grow in this. And we practice it, we'll pull back and settle down. Oh, that is step number two, but it takes a while to, to develop the skill to be able to do that. When we say stop, what we're doing is transferring responsibility to the child again. What we're saying to the child is, um, we're going to empower you to do this. Now, many kids, this is hard. I would suggest it's hard for adults to do. How do you step back? How do you stop when the energy's right there and prompting you to move forward? It's not an easy thing to do with children. So we want them to know exactly how to do it. I said this to one child, 13-year-old. He says, I can't do this. I says, what do you mean you can't do this? He says, I can't pull back. I need to, to get it out so that I can come back to normal. 
I said, are you saying you have to vent it? Yeah, I have to vent it. Because that's commonly taught today. Uh, in secular psychology, you need to vent your anger to get rid of the energy. I said, you know, there's a verse in the Bible just for you. I say that to kids a lot. Because I believe the Bible is a very personal book with practical applications for every one of us. There's a verse in the Bible just for you, I said. In fact, I want you to open my Bible to Proverbs 29, 11. Notice what it says there. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. There's a way to manage this energy that isn't about venting. It's about self-control. This boy would put his fists up to his mom. That's why he's in my office, because he puts his fists up to his mom. So I said to him after, he, he looks at this verse and he starts laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? He says, I guess I'm being a fool. <laughs> I says, yeah, I think maybe you are. You're going to probably want to make some, in fact, I got another verse in the Bible in the next chapter. I'll show you. I said, turn, turn into the next chapter with me. So he goes in my Bible here to Proverbs chapter 30. Let's see where this is. Somewhere down here at the bottom. Verse 32, if you played the fool and exalted yourself, or if you've planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth. I said, there's something you can do with your hands. Instead of putting them up to your mom, now you got something, clap your hand over your mouth. What a great idea. Oh, he was thrilled that day. Light bulbs came on. He had some good ideas for managing his anger. Do you see what we're trying to do? We're trying to help our children know how to process this energy that's coming in. They need to pull back instead of push forward. Now, children can learn that step number two is to stop. But as we've said, it is not easy to do. And it's at this point that children may become discouraged because they know the right thing and they're still having problems with anger. And so we want to encourage them that they're on the right track. Working this plan over time is going to help children develop the self-control, but it's over time. And so in the midst of the plan, we want to share some encouragement with them. So we would suggest you want to track three things as you're helping a child deal with anger, because these three indicators will all decrease over time. The first one is the frequency of anger episodes. When a family comes to us with a child who's struggling with anger, and if we ask, uh, how often is a child having an anger episode? The parent may report, well, five or six times a day. This child just continually erupting in anger. We're walking around in eggshells. We never know what the next trigger is going to be. Well, after we work this plan for a while and we ask the parent, now how often is a child having anger episodes? They may report, well, two or three times a week. That's progress. But in the midst of an anger episode, it doesn't feel like progress because you want to say, I can't believe this is still happening. But the reality is we have to step back and say, yes, but how often is it happening? Our frequency is decreasing. We're on the right track. We need to hang in there. The second thing that we're going to monitor, engage, and see decrease over time is the intensity of the anger episode. How out of control is this child in the midst of the anger episode? Well, that's going to come down because the child is developing self-control, and they're not going to be quite so out of control even when they are angry. And the third thing that decreases, we call recovery time. How long does it take for the child to get back to a sense of emotional well-being after this upsetting experience? Children will begin to recover more quickly as they're developing self-control and anger management. So we want to be tracking all three of these and share them as an encouragement. We're making progress. And we want to encourage children to stay on track, keep working on this. Quite frankly, this is the same plan we use as adults. 
And, and a child who is struggling with anger is going to be struggling with emotion the rest of their life. But this is the plan you put into practice. You recognize it early on, and you, and you learn to pull back before you, you explode or start hurting people. And, and this is just a lifelong process we want to be working on uh, with our children. And often parents say themselves, too. You know, I, I can't help my child deal with his anger until I get a handle on my own anger. And uh, this is the family plan here, uh, dealing with anger. Daniel was 10 years old. He's a, a ball player. When he came to my office, he would get angry on the mound as a pitcher. And when he missed some balls, he would get frustrated and he would then just fall apart. And so the coach sent him to me for some help. And uh, so I started working. And the first day when he came in, I told him, I, I, I don't have a plan for anger that I can give you. And I think he was looking like, why did my parents bring me to this guy? <laughs> but that's what I say to kids regularly. I don't have a plan for anger that I can give you but I can help you develop one. What I want to do is transfer responsibility to the child. I say to kids, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to um, draw this out for you so that you understand what this looks like. And every person has a heart. We're going to start there again. Every person has a heart. And inside the heart, you have an arena. The arena is where the action takes place. It's out of the heart where we have problems first before they come out in our behavior. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is talking a lot about, about anger and murder, comparing the two, and about adultery starts in the heart. So we know that the arena of the heart is very important. I say to kids, the arena is where the action takes place. Where's an area where you tend to get angry? Oh, I get really angry with my brother when he's irritating and annoying. One 14-year-old boy said to me, and his parents said, you know, his nine-year-old brother is annoying. So here's a certifiably annoying brother. <laughs> and uh, the 14-year-old has to live with him. And so I said to the 14-year-old, you know, God probably placed that, your brother in your family for a reason. Why? Probably for you. <laughs> Why? So that you could learn how to work with him. And you could learn how to respond to yourself when he's being annoying. I said, someday you're probably going to work in an office somewhere where some one of the other people in the office is just annoying. And you're going to say, I'm so glad I grew up with an annoying brother because now I know how to deal with this. And I'm going to equip you to deal with this so you know how. So let's take the arena of the annoying brother. Okay? I'm not going to write there. We'll put A for, A for annoying brother. I said, now, you are tempted, it sounds to me, to react out of anger. And what you need is a plan. What is your plan? He says, I don't know. This is what kids say to me all the time. I don't know. I said, okay, I'm going to help you develop a plan. All right, let's take the plan here. And we'll put Billy here. That's his name, Billy. And uh, over here, I'll put ideas. I say, Billy, I want you to tell me five things you're going to do when your brother's annoying so that you don't have to get angry. And if he has attention deficit disorder, I stop at three. And I want to know what you're going to do and what you're going to say. Those two words are important. What you're going to do and what you're going to say. When I say say, I mean, what are you going to say to yourself? Because, let me just show you a verse in this Bible again. Psalm 19, 14 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, some children have a hard time with the meditations of the heart. You tell them to go sit down, take a break, and they go, I can't believe I live in the strictest family in the world, and, uh, and uh, you never punish my brother, you always punish me. And, and those are the meditations of the heart going on. They're, they're doing heart work right there in front of you. It's amazing. Okay? So don't get sucked in. Um, 
Okay, so what I'm saying to him is I want you to think of things you're going to do and things you're going to say. Now, parents, here's what you have to remember. This, you're transferring the problem to your child. Okay, you want your child to be working on it, so you may not write anything on this side. Only the child writes on this side. You can write anything you want on the ideas side. You got ideas about how to handle anger? Put them down here. But the child has to choose which ones are going to be part of his plan. Now, he might not think of five all at the same time, but maybe he'll think of two just the first day. And then he's going to try, it. oh, well, that didn't work. I need a couple more. And kids tell me all kinds of things. One boy said to me, I'm going to lie flat when I'm angry. I said, well, that'll be interesting. <laughs> he's going to lie flat. Why? Because he's trying to deal with the energy, see? And if he lies down, his idea is the energy will go away. I said, okay, fine. I was back the next week. How did that go? He says, that didn't work. <laughs> but here's what he did do. He went and got a drink of water. You know, a drink of water really helps. It helps relax your body. It helps deal with some of the energy. So that was some of the things he did. Some kids put on here, they're going to pray. There's all kinds of things that we put in here that we're going to do. Let me tell you just one story. My grandson Hayden had a problem with anger when he was six and seven years old, and his parents are doing a great job with him. But they said, Dad, would you help us? We're, we're feeling like we don't quite know how to deal with this. It's really over the top here. So I said, okay, well, and so I laid out this plan for him. And I said, um, why don't you try that? And so I was over at their house a couple weeks later, and and I saw it happen. I saw him have one of these anger episodes. That's what we call them, an anger episode where he got upset. And when he settled down, I went to him and I said, I've got an idea for your anger plan. He says, come on, step into my bedroom. He's only, you know, seven or eight years old. So I'm, okay, all right, so I go in there. And here's why. Here's why he says that. Because he pulls out from under his bed a yellow piece of paper with a T-chart on it with about 10 things on the left-hand side that are his anger plan. Apparently, his parents... When he's, you know, has an anger episode, they send him to his room to work on his plan and come out and tell, what part of your plan could you have used better? And so that's why we're in his room, because he's trying to evaluate whether the thing I'm sharing with him can fit on his anger plan, so he has an idea to move forward. I have another girl I'm working with now. She's nine years old. She comes into my office after we've been working on this for a while. She's carrying a purse. And I, I said, what, what are you carrying a purse for? Nine years old. She says, in case I have a problem. Thinking nine years old, hmm, what kind of problem is she talking about? I said, uh, well, what's in it? She says, my plan. She has it in case she's going to have an anger problem. So she carries it around with her because she pulls out her plan. So she opens it up. She pulls out this yellow piece of paper that's so ragged it's falling apart with about 12 things on the side that she does as she's trying to manage her plan. It's her plan. Sometimes I tell parents, you want to help your child develop a plan and they say, oh, we already got the plan. It's all written on the refrigerator. And I said, well, that's two mistakes. You made the plan, and you put it on the refrigerator. Don't do that. You want the child to make a plan. You want to transfer responsibility to the child. And you want the child to be able to put the plan wherever he needs to put it so that he can use it to face the challenges. We want children to step back instead of push forward when they experience anger coming on, that energy coming into their bodies. So you want children to understand what is the arena for them? What is the area where you usually have a problem with anger? And then develop some strategies to manage that, to be able to pull back in that situation and evaluate it. And if the child is developing the plan, then the child has ownership of the plan. You know, we can tell our kids to do all kinds of things, you know, go count to 10 and go take a deep breath and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. But that's your plan. 
We don't know what's going to work for the child, but when the child creates the plan, the child has ownership and a kind of a vested interest. They want to make their plan succeed. It makes sense to them. And they can fine-tune the plan. That's fine. If they try something that doesn't work, they'll try something else. But we're equipping children not only with the, the means for managing their anger, but know how to solve problems in life that you're experiencing. You know, you need a plan for that. You need a plan for that. So what we want to do is help children understand how to make that plan, understand the, the stressors they have, and how are you going to face that? How are you going to pull back? And uh, children do really well when they start developing their own plans. Can we go to the next step? Mm -hmm. All right, let's go to step number three. And step number three is to choose a better response because you can deal with the emotion. But remember, anger is, identifies a problem. It's not good for solving problems, but it's good for identifying problems. That means you still have a problem. You might deal with your emotions in the midst of that, but you still got to deal with whatever the issue is. And so as we're working with children, we try to give them more strategies for solving problems. Things like talk about it or get help. Or slow down and persevere. Can you use the word persevere with a three-year-old? Yes, I think you can if you define it. Just because it's a big word doesn't mean a three-year-old can't understand it. A three-year-old understands what a refrigerator is. That's bigger than persevere. We just have to use it and define it. I define persevere this way. Persevere is hanging in there even after you feel like quitting. Kids can understand that, and we help them know, have a plan. Get, get, let's get some ideas of how you're going to respond when you find yourself tempted to erupt with an anger episode because you see a problem. Let's deal with the problem by, in some kind of way to try to resolve it so that you, don't, are, you aren't using anger to solve problems. We want to help children develop the skills they need to manage the problems they experience. And so that might be conflict management skills, to know how to talk about a problem. You know, if you feel like your friend has offended you, how do you talk to your friend about that without exploding in anger? Or how do you, how do you deal with your brother who's taken something that's yours? Instead of displaying anger, how do you solve that problem? Uh, we want children to have plans for the problems they experience. And so when we, we talk about this choose a different response, it gives us the opportunity to brainstorm about different ways you might have handled that problem, uh, to practice it, maybe do some role playing. How are we going to handle that problem next time it happens so that children have the skills necessary? Uh, we often say that people who don't have plans use anger to solve problems. Not just kids, either. <laughs> so I want you to have a plan as a parent. Once we have plans, then we don't have to use anger to solve the problem. So we want to teach children to have those plans, the plans for pulling back and settling down in step number two, but also plans for solving problems, choosing different responses. How are you going to solve that problem with your friend or with your dad or with your brother? How do we solve problems? Let's have some conflict management skills in place and practice those. And as parents, we want to coach our kids in that. I was working with a 13-year-old girl who had a significant anger problem. And she came in by herself with her mom, but the dad wouldn't come in. He had an anger problem too, but uh, if his daughter would change, he'd be okay. It was kind of his <laughs> attitude. And so I, and he yelled at his daughter regularly. And so I said to her, you know, your dad's wrong when he yells at you like that. But let's work on your anger first. And after we work on your anger for a while, I'll show you how to work with your dad's anger. She goes, yeah, right. <laughs> well, after a few weeks, she's doing really well, really well with her anger, managing herself much better. And I said, let's talk about your dad's anger. Because, you know, there's a concept in the Bible that I want you to understand. The Bible talks about being a peacemaker. A peacemaker. A peacemaker is someone who brings peace into the situation. I think there are a lot of our kids who are troublemakers. 
They incite anger in other people, the brothers and sisters. In this case, as we dialogued, it became clear that this girl often provoked her father to anger in the way that she responded to him. Well, yeah, that doesn't excuse his anger. He's got a problem. He should be dealing with it differently. But he's not there. I'm helping this young lady know how to deal with her dad. And so I said, peacemakers do these things. They say, I have an idea. Or they say, uh, in your case, here's what I'd like you to do. Next time your dad comes in to correct you, I want you to look him in the eye and I want you to say, I'm sorry, dad. See what he does. That's what peacemakers do. So she came back the next week and I said, how did it go? She says, well, it was really weird. I says, why? She says, well, he comes in and he starts yelling at me about something. And so I looked at him and I said, dad, I'm sorry. He didn't know what to do. He just turned around and went out the room. <laughs> I said, you're learning how to be a peacemaker. See, I think that, that uh, we all need to learn how to be peacemakers. That's God's, um, Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers because they are children of God. Um, and I think we're like God when we're being peacemakers. We're solving problems as Christ did on the cross for us. God is a peacemaker with us. And we can be peacemakers with those people around us. That's part of what we're teaching our children in this area of anger. And here's why. Do you remember we talked about this? You can identify problems. You can see them coming on in yourself. The cues. That's the first step. Identify the cues. A person who's a peacemaker sees anger coming on in someone else. And they step in there and they say, hey, I got an idea or something like that. A peacemaker is someone who brings peace into a situation, but they can see it coming on. They're, they're emotionally sensitive enough to pick up on that and bring some solutions to bear. If you have a child in your home who gets angry a lot or explosive with anger, it's probably hard to imagine that child as a peacemaker. But the reality is that the child who gets angry a lot is an emotional child. The child is probably also the life of the party. The child experiences emotions intensely, and well, sometimes we call this child the drama queen. <laughs> you know, the, the world is experienced through their emotions. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, yes, they have to get a handle on the anger side of things, but the reality is that the person who's an emotional person, emotionally sensitive person, it's a real asset because you can sense the emotions in other people as well. You can connect with other people through emotions, and that's how we feel close to people is with our emotions. The child who is emotionally sensitive or the person who's emotionally sensitive can sense what's going on in a room before our word's even spoken. They sense it. They feel it. That's an asset. God can really use that in a person's life. So we want to encourage our children who get angry a lot. That we just Yes, we have to manage the anger side of things, but the emotions are not bad. They're a gift, and God can really use that in your life. So uh, these kids can be great peacemakers as they learn to understand their own anger. They're the the child who has an extra scoop of emotion is the child that often um, is a person who can become a pastor, who can emotionally connect with someone, the person who can be a good counselor or be a salesman who knows how to draw the sale to a close at the right time because they're emotionally sensitive. I just really like that about kids. So I love to work with kids who are emotionally sensitive and help them get their small problem of anger under control so that God can use them dramatically in their lives. Now, there's sometimes we're working with children and, and we come to a challenge in their lives because um, uh, the, the solutions we're bringing don't seem to be working. And so we need to go to another kind of anger that we want to talk to you about. So we're going to take you to 8.30 tonight and we're going to talk to you about a different kind of anger. We're talking about hurt anger. And I want you to understand how this works because every person experiences hurt. Every person 
experiences hurt. Child, adult, everyone. Sometimes it's real hurt. The hurt of a um, getting into a car accident, having to go through physical therapy, and the child's angry about it. That's a real hurt. Or the parents are getting a divorce, and so that's a real hurt in a child's life. But sometimes it's just perceived hurt, where your daughter says, I want to go to the party on Friday night, and you as a parent say, no, we're not going to that party. And that child yells and screams, I can't believe I live in this home. It's just terrible. They're so mean to me. And, and the child perceives it as hurt. You didn't even do anything wrong. And your child experiences hurt. All children need to know how to process hurt in their lives, and so we want to talk to you about that a bit. Because often how we experience, how we process hurt becomes a pattern in life. So we want to be gauging how our children respond when they experience hurt because we want to help them to have a healthy response to gear them in the right direction. So here's a cycle that often happens, and this is in your notes. People don't get to see all these notes when I'm talking to them. I kind of draw it out as we go. But anger is caused by the sense of injustice inside. And then there's this desire for revenge to get back at that person. And that, over time, builds a bitterness inside of a person, and that makes a person an unhappy person. And so many times we'll say to kids, you know, I'm glad I'm, that we're working together because, you know, it's very true that angry people are unhappy people. And so I want kids to understand that the, resolving this anger and being able to address it in their lives is very important. So not feeling unhappy all the time. I'll tell you why some people stay up in this upper cycle. Because they say, I'm right. I've earned my anger. One boy said to me, if you had an annoying brother like me, you'd punch him too. As if somehow that justifies the fact. And there's a lot of people today who stay up in this upper cycle that say, I'm right. I deserve this. I've earned the right to be angry because I've been hurt so much in my life. And it really creates a, a, a problem inside of the person's heart. This is a cycle that uh, people can get stuck in. They stay in that upper cycle. They, they feel like uh, there's a, this injustice. They want revenge. And, and they just stay up there. And the more things that happen to them, the more angry they get. And they end up being an angry person. Maybe you know an older person who has chosen that path in life, and, and every little thing makes them angry now, and all they can talk about is revenge and how unfair things are. Uh, it becomes a real problem for people in that upper cycle. And that's why we say this to kids. It's not good enough to be right. You also need to be wise. There's a lot of right people who are very angry people, and they're right, and they're angry, and they're turning themselves into a miserable person because they're right, and they're angry. Well, it's not good enough to be right. We also need to be wise. It's not wise to stay up in that upper cycle and turn yourself into a, a real uh, angry person. Um, but there's a different way that we can respond besides those things. Imagine two five-year-old boys running down the street. They both fall down. They both skin their knees. One little boy gets up, and he starts hitting mom. We don't know why, but that's his response <laughs> to pain is that he starts lashing out, and he starts hitting. The other little boy, when he gets up, he runs to mom for comfort. He climbs into her arms and just wants to be held and comforted. He's crying. That's the second response to hurt that we all could choose is to respond with sorrow instead of anger. All right, so let's look at that bottom cycle. We have sorrow, and that sorrow needs to be met with comfort, and we need to teach our children how to receive comfort. Um, 
embedding yourself in video games or eating more food isn't exactly the best way to be comforted. So we have to teach them what that comfort looks like. And what that does inside is it creates, I say the word gentle, but it's, you know how it is when you're comforted, ah, kind of, you're ministered to inside of your heart. And what that does, it provides you with a ministry that is to, to do something to help other people. It's the people who've been hurt deeply in life that often have the ability to come around and empathize with someone else who's also been hurt, especially in that particular area. And what does that do? That really helps a person be happy inside or joyful inside because they have this sense of ministry. And that p- comes from this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. And I just want to read that to you so you get it because this is where that bottom cycle comes from. It comes from God's word. Understand these verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. I always pause there. Because I noticed that the passage is talking about a fatherly quality of compassion. I tend to think of that as a motherly quality. The dads are more authoritative and strong, and mothers are more compassionate. But this is a quality of my heavenly father, which means that I as a father need to be compassionate as I'm working with my children. The father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that We can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You see, pain and hurt in our lives is your ticket to ministry. How many times have I sat with a a child whose parents are getting a divorce, and and I say, you know, you're right, um, that isn't God's design. But you you make a choice in your life of what you're going to do. Are you going to respond with anger? Are you going to respond with violence inside? Or are you going to be comforted Because, you know, there's a lot of other kids today whose parents are getting a divorce and could benefit from someone like you who could come alongside and help them. So if you understand this concept, God can do some amazing things inside of you with the hurt. The hurt that's been experienced can turn into a real ministry in your life. And so this bottom cycle takes a person a very different path in life. If you learn to respond to hurt with sorrow and seek out comfort from God that allows your heart to remain soft and allows you to connect with other people in a really special way. You see, anger hardens the heart, but sorrow softens the heart. And if we can learn and develop a pattern of responding to hurt in that way, uh, then we're able to, to minister to other people and understand their pain and connect with them emotionally. So that certainly is the path we want our children to be taking as we see them develop patterns in life, as they experience hurt, whether it be large or small, how they respond becomes very significant. Let's talk about how you move someone from the top to the bottom. How do you move someone from the anger cycle down to this more of a sorrow cycle in their lives, in their personal lives? I think you'll find this to be helpful because this is, I think, a very practical uh, process that we do in, in counseling with people who are stuck. Some people get stuck up there and they need some help moving down. And one of the ways we do that is by doing some teaching about anger. When we teach about these things, that anger is good for identifying problems but not good for solving them, that it's not good enough to be right, you also want to be wise. Anger provides energy into your body, uh, but you need to know how to manage it with self-control and not venting. All these things that we talk about in regards to anger we can teach to children, and, and that teaching and that understanding often equips them more effectively to be able to manage the energy that they have or the, the hurt that they've experienced in their lives. Another way to help a child move from the top cycle down to the bottom is with firmness. Firmness that draws a line on what's acceptable and what's not in their life. You see, what happens sometimes when a child experiences hurt in life The adult who's caring for that child, whether it be a parent or some other guardian, begins to feel sorry for the child. 
You know, a childhood is supposed to be a happy time, and it's, it's unfortunate the child has experienced pain, and look at all they have to go through, and they start making excuses for them. They'd say things like, well, their disrespect makes sense after all they've been through. And they allow them maybe to be disrespectful. They don't require them to do chores. Maybe maybe they don't put limits on their angry outbursts because, well, you know, they're just a child. And they start making those kind of excuses. And unfortunately, what happens is it just enables a child to move into that top cycle. Life's unfair. It shouldn't be this way. And it reinforces that line of thinking where really what we want to do is teach children to have a more appropriate response when they experience hurt, to respond with that sorrow. We want to have compassion, yes. It's, it's sad that this is, you have to deal with this. And this may be uh, pain, physical pain. It may be emotional pain from life situation. It might be a chronic illness. Whatever's causing this discomfort in a child's life, we want that child to be equipped to deal with it, with character. Firmness develops character. Making excuses for the child doesn't really help them in the end. And so teaching children what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and drawing those limits and setting limits for the child, providing structure, is going to help them to respond to the difficult situation they're in. We can't change it, so although we'll empathize, we don't want to allow them to be disrespectful because of it. Another thing we can do to help children is by listening to them. Listening often allows them to process some of the things that are going on inside of the heart. It's hard to listen to a child who might be um, hurtful in the way that they share whatever they're going to share. So it can be challenging to listen. And especially if you get your emotions up then, then it just kind of escalates. So you have to be very careful uh, in this. And often if, you, if a child comes on really strong to you, even disrespectful, and you say, look, I'd like to listen to what you have to say. Why don't you try to calm down and, and I'll listen to what you... And so usually, or often, they'll be able to start talking because they know you're going to listen. They don't need emotion to communicate to you. You're willing to listen to what's going on. My daughter, Megan, uh, when she was 14 years old, came down to my office in my home, downstairs, and uh, she proceeded to tell me something I had done wrong. I don't know exactly what it was. But I, I then told her why I did it. She says, fine, you never listen to me anyway. Slam the door and stomp back up to her room. I said to myself, I don't think I handled that the best way. And we allow do-overs in our family. So I went up to her and I knocked on the door with my yellow pad in hand. And I said, uh, I'm not happy with the way I handle myself down there. I'd like to listen to what you have to say. So she let me come into her room. I sat on her bed, and she began to talk. And for about 10 minutes, she said all kinds of erroneous things. <laughs> and I didn't argue with her. I just wrote them down. So you're saying I always do this, and I never do this. and Okay, I just wrote it all down. I was waiting for her to say, I'm done. And finally, after 10 minutes, it took a long time to get there, she says, I'm done. I said, oh, okay, thank you very much. And I got up to leave. Wait a minute, aren't you going to respond to any of that? I said, well, that's what got me into trouble before. See, I just wanted to build relationship with you and listen to what you have to say. Fine, I'll listen. Okay. I chose one thing off the list, and I said, let me just give you some ideas about this. I was surprised at how willing she was to listen to me. One of the things I think we learn is that we earn the right to speak many times by listening. And especially when children are heard inside, they need to be able many times to be heard. And, and that doesn't mean we, we allow disrespect, but sometimes we can soften that by just listening. We don't have to enter into the argument with them. 
We want to do is help our children see that there are other responses, and we want to equip them and come alongside them and coach them to more appropriate responses, helping them. Uh, and when we see patterns developing that are not appropriate, we want to look at those patterns and help uh, help them develop different strategies for responding to life's difficult times. And I would suggest modeling is a good thing. We want to model the the response to pain and hurt with our children. Um, it's hard to well, first of all, you have plenty of opportunity. Because children who are hurt often hurt other people by their words.